Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. If you're using one of the blue uh, pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. This is the very word of God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you humbly, asking that you would remember your promise, that your word not return void. But Father, that you be at work even here and now through your Spirit by the Word, conforming us more and more to the image of the glory of your Son, that though we have been sinners, we are now purified and set free to serve the living God now and forevermore. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the center of this passage is an interesting comparison. It is a comparison between God's covenant with his people and a last will and testament. Now we all know what a will is, and we we know what a will is for. A will is a legal document that we use to ensure that whatever assets we have when we die go to the people that we want to have them. 
There are countless stories of the, the fights that ensue when someone with assets dies without a will. So we know what a will is. But despite our familiarity with wills, the, the similarities between a will and a covenant are not immediately obvious. What is it that the author wants us to see? What is it that he wants us to see by this, this play on words? And it really is a play on words because the, the same Greek word that is translated covenant throughout the, the Greek Old Testament and has been used by the author here in this letter many times to refer to God's covenant, it is actually the same word that most people in the first century used to refer to a will. The same word is translated one way or the other depending on Context. And so the word that the author uses in verse 16 for will is actually the same word that he has been using up to this point, the same word that he used in verse 15 to refer to the, the new covenant. We, we only know that he has transitioned to, to talking about a will because of what he says about it. He says that the death of the one who made it must be established and that it's not in force as, as long as the one who made it is alive. That's, that's language that pertains to a will. But what is the comparison that he wants us to see? Why does he, he transition to this new meaning? Why does he begin to compare God's covenant with his people, the, the covenant of which Jesus is now the, the new mediator? Why does he make a comparison between that covenant and God's will? That's the question that we need to understand. What is the, what is the similarity? Because it is that similarity that is the main thing that he wants us to see in this passage. Now, of course, we know that when an author makes this sort of play on words, when he's comparing a, a will to a covenant, he doesn't mean to suggest a perfect one-to-one -one correspondence. He, he doesn't mean that they are exi exactly alike in, in every way. But he is saying that they're alike in some way. And we need to understand the similarity that he is pointing us to if we're going to hear the, the point that he wants us to get in this passage. And so this morning I want to suggest to you that the similarity between God's covenant and a last will and testament are at least two. There are at least two similarities that we need to see. And the first is, is obvious in the language that the author uses. The, the first similarity is simply this, that, that in both God's covenant and in a will, there is an inheritance at stake. He's talking about an inheritance. There's an inheritance that is promised in God's covenant, and there's an inheritance that is dispersed through a will. But there's also a second similarity, and he states this explicitly as well, that in order for that inheritance to be dispersed, there is a death that is required. So there's an inheritance at stake, and there is a death that is required. Let's begin with the inheritance. The author points us to this inheritance in, in verse 15. Look again at what he writes. He says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now to say that Jesus is the, the mediator of the new covenant is simply to summarize everything he's been saying since he first introduced the idea of the new covenant back in chapter 8. He, he's been pointing us to Jesus as the mediator of this new covenant all along. But what I want you to notice here is the purpose statement. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant so that, 
those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now those who are called here refers to those who have been called into covenant relationship with God. When God makes a covenant, God makes the covenant. It it is imposed unilaterally. He, He calls people into covenant relationship. It is not a negotiated contract. And this is significant for the way that that we think about God's covenant with his people. Think of Abraham being called out of Ur. He, He doesn't pursue God. He isn't looking for God. God pursues him. God goes looking for him. And once God calls him, he doesn't negotiate, but simply receives the terms of the relationship. And you need to know this. If you are here this morning... And, and you are thinking about God, and you are, you are debating whether or not you want to pursue a relationship with Him. If you are one who is inquiring, one who is seeking, you need to know that, that the only way to have a relationship with God is on His terms. He calls you into relationship. He imposes the relationship. It is not up for negotiation. But also think about Abraham. This doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. God calls us into relationship. God called Abraham out of Ur. But Abraham had to respond to God's call. Abraham had to to submit to God's call by by going out from his homeland, by, by going to a land that he didn't yet know. He was going simply at God's command. He was walking in the footsteps of faith. And that is what was required of him if he was going to receive the promised inheritance. And it is the same for for all of us here this morning. If we would have a relationship with the one true and living God, we come to him on his terms. But we must come to him. We must respond to his call in faith. But you see, that's the point of, of, of difficulty in the old covenant The problem with the Old Covenant was that that submission to God's call, the the submission that was required, was submission to God's law. If you were to receive the the promised inheritance, the, the inheritance held out to you in the Old Covenant, then you needed to submit to the law that was given to the people at Sinai. Think again of the words of of Moses. He said, if you keep God's law, you will receive the inheritance. But if you break it, if you fail to keep it, then you will instead receive the covenant curses. And that principle has not been set aside. Paul echoes it in his letter to the Galatians, saying, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so if you are going to have a relationship with your Heavenly Father, if you are going to be reconciled to Him, the terms of the relationship are set forth in the law. If you are seeking a relationship with Him, there there are no other grounds on which you can come. And you need to know this. You you need to know that to to, to submit to the law is to submit to God, and it is only through such submission that that you can receive the inheritance. You need to know this. Because it is the demands of the law that points you to the need for atonement. You see, Paul doesn't just say that that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law. 
He also says that no one abides by all things in the book of the law. Cursed be everyone who relies on works of the law because no one keeps it. We have all sinned and, and fallen short. We are all equally condemned. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. And so the law points us to our need for an atoning sacrifice. It, it points us to our need for a substitute by whose blood we can be cleansed from the guilt of our sins. And it was exactly in response to that need that God gave Old Testament Israel the sacrificial system. The Old Testament sacrifices were meant to be the means by which the people would atone for their sins. The, the sacrifices would cleanse them of their guilt and restore them to good standing before the Lord. But again, there was a problem. The problem was that the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were merely a shadow. They were merely a shadow of what was Required, as the author has already told us in, in verse 9, the sacrifices and the offerings of the old covenant could not perfect the consciences of the worshiper. They could not actually deal with our guilt. Something more than the blood of bulls and goats was, was necessary. The, the sacrifices showed us what was needed, but they lacked substance. And that substance is found only in Christ. That's why He's the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant because He offered not the blood of calves and goats, but His own precious blood. And thus Jesus has secured for us by His death what Moses could only promise but never deliver. That is, as the author has already told us, Jesus, by his sacrifice of himself, has secured for his people the promised eternal inheritance. See, that's the, that's the good news that the author wants us to see. It's, it's what the author has been, been saying, really, throughout from the beginning of this book, that the eternal inheritance that was offered in the Old Covenant is secured only through the blood of Christ. Only in Jesus' offering of himself as a, as a lamb without blemish or spot to, to purify our consciences from dead works, only by that sacrifice have we been set free from, from the judgment of the covenant, set free to inherit instead its promised inheritance. Jesus washed us in his blood so that we might be heirs of all the good that God promised. So here's the question. What is that inheritance? What is this promised inheritance that the author is talking about? The word promise clues us in that he's, he's talking about the inheritance that was first promised to Abraham when he called him out of Ur. You remember that, that God promised to bless him and to, to, to bless him that he might be a blessing. But in the heart of that promise is a promise of the land. It's the same promise that was repeated to the, the people at Sinai when God gave them the law through Moses that they would, they would enter and take possession of the land. And again, it's the, the, the promise that was given through David that David's greater son would rule this land and that it would be filled with the Lord's Peace. 
So again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, the promised inheritance is the land, the promised land that God said that he would give to his people. But of course, it's more than just a track of dirt. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices were only a shadow of what was required, that land was only a shadow of what was promised. You see, in the land, the people were to experience God's shalom. They were to experience flourishing. They were to experience His his blessing. They were to know again what life was supposed to be like on earth. But in that land, because of their sin, because because of their rebellion against God, and because of their weakness, they would only ever know that in part. They would only ever partially experience the the wonder of life in God's kingdom. But they knew that more was coming. In the land, they, they, they tasted something of the kingdom, and they delighted in it. But at the same time, the author of Hebrews tells us that they knew more was coming. We see this in in chapter 11, in verses 8 and 9 of of chapter 11. The author says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. You hear all the same words there. It's it's the land, it's, it's promise, it's inheritance. But he knows that that land is only a foreshadow of what is to come. Because notice what he says. He went and lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew that the land was, was just a shadow of what God was truly promising him, that he was promising him the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And Abraham went and he, he lived in that land as a sojourner. He lived in that land without receiving the full promise because he knew that more was coming, because he longed for something more than an earthly city. We see it again in verses 14 through 16. He says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, if they thought that the promise was was just an earthly land, when they got there and they didn't receive it, when they got there and they were living as sojourners and they were living in tents, then they could have gone back to the land that they had left. But instead, they kept looking forward because they knew that something better was coming. They knew that God had in store for them a heavenly city. And that's why the author says that it is a promised eternal inheritance. The inheritance that God has for his people and the inheritance that he has had for them from the beginning is the coming kingdom of God. A kingdom that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in glory. An inheritance that that Peter says is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
This is what God has in store for his people. An eternal inheritance. A heavenly city. The coming kingdom of God. This is what is yours in Christ. An eternal inheritance. And take a moment just to to rest in the significance of what that means for us. We've already seen that that for the patriarchs, having knowledge of this inheritance freed them to to walk in the footsteps of faith, even in the the midst of what were difficult circumstances. It allowed them to live as, as sojourners and exiles without losing hope because they knew that God had in store for them something better. And it is that something better that is now ours in Christ. It is that something better which now belongs to all of Abraham's children, belongs to us who have believed on him for eternal life. You see, eternal life is not just this life forever, but eternal life is life in the coming age. It is life in the age to come. It is life in the coming kingdom of God. It is life put right in a world cleansed of all that sin put wrong. That is what God has for us. In this life, people sometimes say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They're not suggesting that we be foolish. They're not suggesting that we, that we just throw our lives away. But they are saying, listen, you better seize today. You better seize as much joy as you can get today because this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, then it's hard to argue with their logic. If this life is all there is, then then they're right. But this life is not all there is. God has in store for His people an eternal inheritance. And when we see beyond death, when we see the life of the age to come, the wisdom of the Epicureans becomes utterly foolish. For we have an inheritance that sets us free not to grasp for all we can get in this life, but rather to serve our King here and now, knowing that He has in store for us an eternal inheritance. So the first question that we must ask ourselves this morning is, do we know this inheritance is coming? Do we live like heirs of the King? Because that's the comparison that he's making. God's covenant is like a will in that there is an inheritance to be had, an inheritance promised to all those who are called. But it's not just that there is an inheritance. There's a second similarity that we must see between God's covenant and a will. And the second similarity is this. The second similarity is that there is a death that is required. Again, we see this in verse 15. The author says, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, Jesus is able to secure the eternal inheritance because a death 
has occurred. Now, interestingly, he doesn't tell us exactly what that death is in that sentence. But I think we may make a couple of deductions here. First, we, we may understand that a death was necessary because of the sins of the people. He says that death has occurred that redeems them from the sins committed under the first covenant. Remember how God revealed himself to, to Moses. He revealed himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who, who keeps steadfast love for a thousand generations, a God who delights to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. But at the same time, he also revealed himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty. A God who cannot simply overlook sin and leave it forever unpunished. And so this merciful God has to, at the same time, be a God who punishes sin. A death was necessary to redeem the people from their sin. That's the first thing that we conclude. But there's a, a second conclusion that the, uh, the author's logic points us to, and that's this, that, that not only was there a death that was necessary, but that the deaths that occurred under the Old Covenant, namely the deaths of bulls and goats, that they were not the death that was required. Their, their death was, was not sufficient. Their death could not redeem. A better death was necessary. And of course, we know that that better death was the death of Jesus. But why? Why was Jesus' death necessary to redeem those who were called? Why was it necessary to, to redeem those who were called from their sins? Why was it necessary if they were going to receive the inheritance that, that Jesus die? Well, again, the, the comparison to a will helps us here. With a will, the inheritance can only be dispersed and received when the right death has occurred. Namely, the, the death of the one who made the will. This is why the request of the younger son in the, the parable of the, the two sons was, was so offensive to his father. By asking for his inheritance now, what was he saying? He was saying that he wished his father was already dead. Because in a will, the inheritance is only dispersed when the one who made it, has died. As long as he is alive, the, the will is not in force. The right death has to occur. And it is the same with the covenant. The inheritance can only be dispersed and received when the right death has occurred. There had to be a death that could actually deal with the sins of the people. The death that occurred under the old covenant were insufficient. They were, they were merely a shadow. They could not perfect the conscience of the, the worshipers. They weren't the right death. But Jesus' death was. And of course, here's where the comparison gets difficult. It's clear that the author is saying that, that the right death was required. But is he also saying that the right death, the death that was required, was the death of the one who made the covenant? With a will, the, the right death is pretty clear. The right death is the death of the one who made it. But is that also true of God's covenant? At first glance, it seems sort of absurd. It, it seems absurd because it's impossible. 
God is the one who made the covenant. God is immortal. He can't die. How can his death be necessary in order for the inheritance to be dispersed? It's a fair question, but I would suggest to you that if you look again, despite the apparent foolishness of the suggestion, that is exactly what the author is saying. In verses 18 through 22, I don't have time to go through them in detail, but in verses 18 through 22, the author reminds us that under the old covenant, the shadowy things were purified. They were cleansed by shadowy sacrifices. The earthly created tent was cleansed by the blood of an earthly created sacrifice. But notice what he says in verse 23, that the true things, the heavenly things, They required a better sacrifice. The true things required a true sacrifice. No mere creature could be that sacrifice. No mere creature could give his life to redeem those who were called from the guilt of their sins. If God was going to redeem his people, if they were going to be purified, God would have to offer himself. Only God's death could accomplish atonement. Only God's death could release the inheritance because only God's death could truly atone for the guilt of our sins. That's the only, only the death of the one who made the covenant could secure the inheritance of God's people once God's people had broken the covenant. But how is it possible for God to die? I think you already know the answer. God gives his life in the person of his son. Christ's death is the right death. The death that was required by the covenant. Because Christ's death is the death of the one who made the covenant. In Christ's death, the eternal Son of God, who is very God of very God, who is of one substance with His Father, equal in power and glory, the eternal Son takes on human flesh, a a full human nature, that He might enter fully into our misery, even to the point of death, that He might give His life as the ransom price of our redemption. He gave His life. He shed His blood as the one who made the covenant, so that we might receive the inheritance of the covenant. Such is the love of God for his people. Such is the love of God for all whom he has called into relationship with himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son as the sacrifice for our sins so that in Him we might receive the promised eternal inheritance, so that in Him the kingdom of God might be ours for all eternity. Be still and let that thought overwhelm you. Such is the love of God for His people. Not only does He have a glorious inheritance in store for us, But he has secured that inheritance for us, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of his own son. And in his death and the offering of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we see clearly and beyond all reasonable doubt 
the all-surpassing love of God for his people on full display. As Paul tells us in Philippians, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is God's love. This is Jesus' love on full display. As we've already sung here this morning, if God so loved us, if he has purchased our redemption with the blood of his own son, we may know for certain that he will bring us all the way home to our inheritance. We may know for certain that he will not fail to give us all that he has promised. We must simply learn to rest in that assurance. We have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the coming kingdom of God, and it is secure. It is a treasure beyond moth and rust. It is a a, a treasure that cannot be touched by thieves. Is it a treasure that is kept in heaven for us by the very power of God? And if he is keeping our inheritance for us, then we can know, as Peter says, that he will keep us for it as well. We even now are being guarded by the power of God through faith. And he will bring us home. He will give us the inheritance. Because he has already bought and paid for it with the precious blood of his Son. And because such an inheritance is not just promised, but because such an inheritance is secured for us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your love for us. We rejoice in what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that in him our inheritance is secure. Father God, may you teach us to rest in this promise and to walk boldly in the footsteps of faith as sojourners and exiles in this life until you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.